We have two people here who are at the meeting at 9.30, Dan being one and Rory being the other, hardcore. He prayed for me on Friday, so he said he was spiritually invested. <laughs> so I had to come along. Um, my name's Ben. Morning. You all right? It's my privilege to bring the word of God to us today. I hope it will be helpful and I hope it will challenge you and I hope it will bless you. Do you want to play the Guess Where Ben's Preaching From game again? We played it last time. I preach infrequently, which means I have more opportunity to kind of jump around rather than stick in a book. And last time we got it pretty quickly. This time it might be a challenge. We're going to go for a chapter of a book in the Bible, okay? That's what we're aiming for. So it's a yes-no game. You ask me a question, I can say yes or no. Okay, so hands up if you want to ask. Alistair. It's in the Old Testament, yes. Well done. You could have asked, is it in the Bible? That's the first one. It's in the Old Testament, John. Is it Psalm 65? No, it's not. Interesting you went for really narrow rather than picking a book straight off. Bad strategy. Oh, I'm going to go right first. I'll come back to Catherine. I'm going to go Peter. Is it one of the history books? Yes. I'm going to go left to Catherine. I'll come back to you, Stuart. Catherine? It's not Psalms. Not Psalms at all. No, that was a legitimate question, Stuart. What's the name of the book? <laughs> no. I say, this is taking longer than I expected. We're down to five books, really. Chris? Is it one of the Pentateuch? Yes, which is kind of the same, not quite the same question as Peter Bars. Rory? No. Rob? No. No. Again? No. No! Yeah! We've only got to get the chapter now. It's above 10 and it's less than 12. Chris thought I was making it harder. I was telling you what, numbers 11, we're in numbers 11. Let me start by saying this. Great to hear that interpretation of the tongue of talking about the promises of God. Let me just remind us of some promises of God before I really kick in. Jesus promised this in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. Amen. No. He said this as well in Matthew 16, 24. Take up your cross and follow me. The cross was a form of execution. Doesn't sound great fun, does it? In the midst of that interpretation, there was mentions of difficulties and hardships. And Jesus promises us that we will face those in this life. Just want to encourage your soul with that this morning. And leave it there. No, we'll go a bit further. It's really important that we understand this. It's really important that we get hold of it. And it's really important that in the midst of those hardships and challenges, we process them well and deal with our relationship well. And that's really what I want us to focus on today. See, the people of Israel, God's chosen people in the desert, which is the passage we'll read in a second, they didn't handle the difficulties and the hardships of being in the wilderness particularly well. And 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tells us that these things happened, talking about the things that happened to the Israelites, they happened as examples and were written down to us as warnings. So we get the opportunity this morning to learn from their mistakes, if I can put it that way. So we're going to read Numbers 11, but let me just put it into some bit more context for those who are unfamiliar with the story. The people of God were enslaved in Egypt 
They were under forced labor and they were building for Pharaoh. They, were, they had no freedom. They were trapped. It was an awful life. And they cried out to their God and said, God, please, please set us free. And God, through Moses, through a series of pray, plagues, led them out of Egypt into freedom, into the wilderness. Then they faced the Red Sea and the Egyptians were coming in on the back of that trying to kill off the Israelites because Pharaoh had changed his mind and they got to the Red Sea. God miraculously opened up the Red Sea. They went through on dry land. The Egyptians followed and they were totally destroyed. And then they found themselves effectively in the desert, in the wilderness. And we pick the story up a year later. So a year later, they've just celebrated the Passover, which means they were looking back to their escape from Egypt and how God had said to them that he needed to put the blood of a perfect lamb on the doorpost of their house in order that the 10th plague would not affect their family. In other words, the firstborn in that family would not die. And that was the plague that forced Pharaoh to let God's people go. But it's also the plague that the Israelites clung on to as the great salvation of God that enabled them to be set free. So they had remembered that. They've just remembered that a year later. And then we pick up the story here in Numbers 11. And I'm going to read from verse 4. It says, The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites, Israelites started wailing and said, by the way, I'm going to wail when I read this, because otherwise, otherwise it's not accurate. So it will sound a bit funny, but I, actually I want to get the sense of this passage, because they are, they are wailing. They're not British people saying, isn't this uncomfortable? They are wailing and weeping, okay? If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servants? What have, what have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. We'll, we'll leave it there. Although we'll pick up a little bit of the story that happens after that. This was a difficult time for the people of Israel. It was hard. They'd been in the, um, they'd been in the desert for a year. Now, let's just put yourself into the place of the Israelites. Imagine the miraculous signs you'd seen in Egypt, these amazing things that enabled you to then 
get your freedom, totally free. You'd not earned it, you'd not done anything to do it, you just followed Moses and followed God, and you got out. And then suddenly you face the Red Sea, and suddenly the Egyptians are behind you, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is the end. Then the Red Sea parts, and you, as an individual, as a person, as the chosen people of God, you've walked through on dry land in the middle of the Red Sea. You go through to the other side, and then the Egyptians are totally destroyed. Your freedom is now guaranteed. But your freedom is wandering around the desert for a year. Now, if you'd experienced all these miracles in Egypt, coming out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, what would your expectation be of the next steps in God's plan? What would your expectation be? If you're anything like me, I think you'd have thought you'd gone straight into the promised land, taken down a load of land, made it your own, built houses and cities, planted some vineyards, and been living the life of Riley. I think that is what their expectation was. So not only are they facing hardships and difficulties, I think they're grappling with disappointment, genuine disappointment. It's not what they expected. It's not what they wanted. Now, I am familiar with the concept of disappointment, and I want you to make sure we feel this emotion. When I was 10 years old, not that long ago, I wanted for my birthday an, an animal monster truck toy. Now, anyone of my generation remember that? It was about this big, and it had wheels, and the claws came out of the wheels so it could climb up even better. That was what was amazing about it. I told my parents specifically, I put it in the form of writing, this is what I would like for my birthday. Birthday comes, I got the Bigfoot monster truck, which was rubbish in comparison And I could not hold back my disappointment. I stated it outright. I was rude, I was spoiled, and I said, this is not what I want. I do not want this. I do not want Bigfoot. I wanted the animal truck. I told you, I felt so disappointed. Ungrateful little brat. Can you think back to a time when you've been genuinely disappointed, really, really disappointed, whether it's something insignificant like that or something more significant in life? Perhaps you had prayed for something and you expected God to act and move and it didn't happen. Perhaps you'd been in a relationship and you thought this was the relationship and it ended up not being the relationship. Perhaps you'd gone for the job that everything pointed towards, all the doors would open, you went, this is the job God's given me. But you didn't get it. I want us to make sure that we're rooting this in, our, in real emotion. They were feeling, I think, feeling real disappointment. And they were experiencing real difficulties. But as we look at the passage, there are two different reactions to this, these hardships and this disappointment. We see the reactions of the Israelites. And essentially, their reaction can be summarized as wailing which, from a point of clarification, has nothing to do with large sea animals. animals. Thanks. I don't know, people were confused, I can tell. They were wailing. And you kind of, you kind of think, well, they're just wailing. It's, it's not, that's not the end of the world, is it? But Psalm 78, 22. Let's, let's just turn briefly there. Psalm 78 looks back and comments on this time. And it just helpfully points to the real issue with the Israelites at this point in time. 
Verse 22, it says, they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. So it can be characterized, the symptom is wailing, but the underlying problem is that they're not trusting God or his deliverance. That is their reaction, that is their response to hardship and disappointment. Now Moses doesn't come out that great. He sounds pretty pathetic, if you ask me. He's basically suicidal. He said, God, if this is what you're going to do, can you please kill me? Which is an interesting reaction for the most humble man, as uh, Moses is called in the Bible. And the, God, the person that God had called and had led the people of Israel. But he's reacting like that. But I think the most interesting thing, and this is kind of like the summary of the message and we'll go into more detail. The interesting thing is the Israelites, they, they incur God's anger. So it says in verse 10, God was exceedingly angry. Now, I'm going to make a guess on behalf of us that we don't want to be in that position. I'm just, just making a guess that we don't want to be in the position where we incur God's anger. Moses gains God's blessing. So just beyond what the bit we've read, it says God placed something of Moses' spirit upon 70 of the leaders to share the burden. And we can look at the Israelite reaction and Moses' reaction and think, they both sound pretty emotional. But God sees them as totally different. God God is angered by one reaction. God blesses the other. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at how we can make sure we learn the lessons from the Israelites and not respond like them. And learn the lessons from Moses and try and respond like Moses to our difficulties and our disappointments that Jesus promises us we will face. So I'm just going to nip back to the passage. So let's look at the Israelites. Verse 4. Don't crave other food. That's the lesson we can learn. The rabble with them began to crave other food. When you go to a garage, preferably with a car, you can have, if you meet, you think, I know what's wrong with my car. I've got a rough idea. There's a banging over here, and I think the suspension's gone. I think that's the problem. And you kind of chat to the mechanics if you know something. Yeah, I think the, the suspension's wrong. And he's like, okay, yeah. He will find out exactly what's wrong, because he'll plug it into a computer, and the computer will say, this is wrong. It's an accurate diagnostic. My diagnostic is not very accurate, because I'm just guessing. The Israelites are not very happy. The Israelites are disappointed. The Israelites aren't having much fun. And they make their own diagnosis as to what will make it better. They say, we need better food. Then we would be happier. They're focusing on the food. Now, when we face disappointments, when we have hardships and difficulties, there is a danger that we can look to other things that need to change in order for our happiness, if I can call it that, or our joy to come back. So for instance, you may be thinking, if only I had that job. If I got out of this job and I got that job, then life would be so much better. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, very simply, if I had a bit more money, then I would be happier. Or maybe you'd be saying, if, if, 
you know, if, I, if school wasn't so tough, it wasn't so difficult to go to school, I had to do all that learning, all those tests, all the time, then my life would be so much better. And we can look to these things to change, for those circumstances to change, in order to deal with our disappointment, in order to deal with our, the hardships. And let me say, there's nothing wrong with those things per se, at all. But if we're looking for those things to satisfy us, then we're looking in the wrong place. Philippians 4, verse 13 says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's a much quoted passage, but the context is this. Paul says, I says I can deal with having plenty and I can deal with having very little because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the Israelites, instead of saying, we're going to press into God, we're going to find our satisfaction in him, we're going to get hold of more of him, we're going to trust him, they instead say, and it sounds really, really silly, we need more food, then we'll be happy. But I think it's a real danger for us to look for our circumstances to change in order that we might feel less disappointed or might be able to handle hardships better. But let me encourage us. Let's not crave other food, but let's crave Christ. Let's pursue him. Let's go after more of him. Let's find our satisfaction in him. Second lesson we can learn for the Israelites Let's remember the right things. What do they remember? And it's food related again. They remember, they get really excited about this. Kids, I don't think you're going to get excited about this, but this is what the Israelites, back in the day, this is what excited them. It wasn't chocolate, it wasn't trifle, it wasn't cake. It wasn't, what else is exciting food-wise? I don't know. Ice cream, that's very exciting. That wasn't what got them excited. This is what got them excited. Fish. Yeah, cucumbers, mm-mm, leeks, yeah, onions, mm. garlic. Remember those things we had. Wasn't life amazing when we had that food? Wasn't it brilliant, they were saying to each other? They had selective memory. They said, it's free, it was free as well. Of course it was free, you were slaves. Come on! They remember the wrong things. They had forgotten that they were slaves. They had forgotten that God had set them free from slavery through, without their own effort. They'd forgotten that God had got them through the Red Sea without their own effort. Let's just turn briefly to Exodus 14, 14, because there's a great verse there. This is just before they're facing the Red Sea. Let's go from verse 13. So the Egyptians are closing in. They've got the Red Sea in front of them. There's no way out. They're saying, what can we do? What can we do? Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And this is it. The Lord will fight for you you need only to be still. They had forgotten that their salvation and their freedom and their redemption was achieved totally by them being still. 
They were remembering fish. They were remembering garlic. But they weren't remembering their salvation and their freedom. They weren't remembering what God had done totally free for them. What do you spend time remembering? Because this is a wonderful picture of what Jesus has done for us. And we were encouraged last week by Dan to make sure that we were devoted to the breaking of bread. One of the saddest things about this story is that only a few days before, they had had the Passover. They had remembered all that God had done. And a few days later, all they could remember was food. We've been encouraged to make sure we devote ourselves to the breaking of bread. Not because it's religious or because it's the right thing to do even. Because if we wander even a centimetre away from the cross, then we've wandered too far. Because the cross of Christ is this beautiful free gift of salvation for us. What have we done to be Christians. We've done one thing, really, and that is bring our sin to Jesus. We come to Jesus and we say, we have nothing. We can't earn our own salvation. We can't make this happen. I can't, I can't rack up a load of good works and make myself pleasing to God. It's not going to happen. And it's like, if, I've, if there's drawers, if you've got drawers full of files, if you open my sin drawer, it's absolutely horrendously jam-packed. If you open my good works drawer, well, there's nothing in there really compared to the amount of sin that I've produced in my life. And so if I come before God and say, look, I need to justify myself on the basis of my good works, then he says, I'm sorry, it's not good enough. I want perfection. I require perfection. We're stuck, aren't we? What a horrendous position to be in. We can't satisfy God's standards. We remember the cross of Christ. Remember what he has done. Remember the free gift, because actually on the cross, our sin was dealt with forever. We do not get punished for our sin. We do not experience God's wrath. If we trust in Jesus and the cross, instead, he takes it all. And if we venture any distance away from that, we are too far away, my friends. So let's devote ourselves to breaking bread. Let's make sure we stay close and remember the cross and remember what he has done. Third lesson from the Israelites. Don't miss the mini miracles. Don't miss the mini miracles. The manna that they had was a miracle. The manna came down with the dew. Can you imagine that? Kids, can you imagine this particularly? You wake up in the morning. Instead of going to get breakfast from the cupboard, you walk outside to your grass and you pick it up. And you say, thank you, Lord. And off you go and you make your breakfast from that. That was the scenario the Israelites were in. God was miraculously providing for their needs. He was making sure they had sufficient sustenance and food to survive in the desert where there was nothing to eat. It was amazing and it was miraculous. But God's miraculous provision, they came to resent. And they took 
for granted. All we see is this manna, they wailed. Let me just try and apply this for us. There's, there's, I don't think there's a redirect application, but I think there are things in our lives that can cause us to praise and cause us to worship and cause us to be thankful, but we often take for granted. Let me just suggest a few things. Creation. The beauty of creation, from great landscapes to flowers to mini beasts. How often do you reflect on how amazing those things are and let them be a cause of worship in your heart? Or do you go out to the Peak District and go, that's all right, isn't it, eh? It's not bad. Or, even worse, take it totally for granted and don't notice the beauty of creation at all. Let's not fall into that category. Parents. Psalm 127 says that children are a gift, a blessing, a heritage from the Lord. <laughs> There's one parent and main in that. All the other parents are looking a little bit. <laughs> children are a blessing from the Lord. Now, as a parent of three young children, I can testify that that is a statement of faith. <laughs> Sometimes. There are difficulties and challenges in in parenting. But children are a gift from God. And we should thank God for them and not take them for granted and never, never resent them. Children, what do you think of your parents? Do you think of them as God's amazing provision for you? Dominic does, he's smiling. (laughs) God, your parents love you in a way that is amazing. It doesn't matter how you talk to them or how you behave or what you do, they're going to keep on loving you. Now that's not an excuse to do what you want or say what you want at all. But particularly if you're getting a little bit older, into your teenage years, society, your friends, will start to moan about their parents, and they will start to resent their parents. Don't fall into that category. Don't make that mistake. Parents can be annoying sometimes. I'll admit that. But fundamentally, they have your best at heart, and they're God's provision to help you grow into the person that God's made you. So don't resent them. Thank God for them, and do your best to be nice to them. If you're married, very quickly, how often do you thank God for your partner? Just a simple one. If you're in the church today, now, how often do you thank God for the church? The church is a mini miracle. The church, through the cross of Christ, brings together every single part of life, every single person, every single reality, comes together and are welcome at the church. Do we see it as God's miraculous blessing to ourselves? We receive comfort and encouragement when we're not judged, when we're loved, where the love of God is expressed to us. Do we thank God for the church? Or do we just see it as a series of meetings that we have to go to, we kind of take it for granted? So, non-direct, slightly challenging application of the manner, oh, it's everywhere, point. Let's move on to Moses. Okay, Moses 
gets God's blessing. Let's be like Moses, okay? Moses was clearly disappointed. He shared the same disappointment or the same feeling of disappointment for different reasons. And it's a remarkable passage, a remarkable statement of his honesty before God about how he's feeling. So let's see what we can learn from Moses. How can we make sure we are honoured and blessed by God when, it's in, when we're in disappointments and uh, difficulties? The first thing I think we can see is that Moses went directly to the source where the problem can be solved. The Israelites went to the edge of their tents and wailed to everyone else. Moses goes to the source. How do you handle difficulties and hardships? Do you go to the edge of your tent and wail about it to everyone? Or do you get before God and say, this is how I'm feeling? Moses had a genuine relationship with God, which enabled him to go straight to God and have that honesty. He had the burning bush experience. He walked and saw the bush that did not burn, but it's called the burning bush. And God called him by name, Moses, Moses, I've got a job for you. Come and do this with me. The Bible tells us that we're called by name. The Bible tells us that before the creation of the world, we were chosen to be holy and blameless. We have confidence to come into the presence of God because we're in Christ and his righteousness makes us um, acceptable to God. We have genuine relationship with God. We're not just some people who know about God. We're God's people who know him. So when we go through difficulties and disappointments, not only can we come to him first and foremostly, but we can come to him honestly and completely pour out our heart to him. We can't fool him even if we wanted to. He knows the very innermost parts of our hearts. And what we learn from Moses, he just pours it all out to God. He says, this is where I'm at. Can you please kill me if this is how it's going to go? Now, have you ever had a prayer before God that's been that honest? Moses, that's how Moses comes to God. Total and utter honesty. And how can he do that? Because he knows that his relationship with God was initiated by God, not him. He knows that his relationship with God hangs on God's faithfulness, not on his effort. He knows that God is his father, not his pharaoh. You see, the Israelites probably were thinking God is another pharaoh, another slave master, another person who just wants to get stuff out of us. But Moses knew he wasn't that. Moses knew he was God, the father, and was ready to take care of his people. Verse 11, Moses calls himself God's servant. It's just a throwaway word. I normally wouldn't dig into this detail on one word in the Old Testament, but for me, it just speaks of his attitude to his relationship with God. God is not his genie. What I mean by that is, his prayer life isn't this, God, can you do this for me? Because I know I've got three wishes. So can you make this happen for me? His prayer life is more like, God, it's your plans and your purposes, and I'm your servant. And that really subtle change in mindset affects how we process disappointment and hardships, I'd suggest. 
We want to come before God and say, we're your servant. We're here for you. Verse 15. I'm going to get a positive point out of this. You'll be impressed. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now, if I found favour in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. How can we pull a positive, positive point out of a statement of suicide? Well, here we go. What I think this suggests is that Moses places his own will in the context of God's will. So he says, God, I know you're God, so if you're going to do this, this is what I want. So he's still, there's still a subservience, there's still serving. Now, he's still not the greatest example because what he wants is to die, which is not, not great. So it's not a great point of application for us. So let's look at someone else who made a similar statement. Let's look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's considering the cup, as he calls it. He's considering what's facing him, which is that not only is he going to suffer crucifixion, the most cruel and pain death, painful death, but he's going to experience separation from his father, who he has been completely and totally united with in love for eternity. And for the first moment ever, he's considering being separated, not because of his own sin, not because he's done something wrong, but because he's taking the sin of the world upon himself and because he's taking the wrath of God upon the sin of men and women upon himself. And he says these famous words, let this cup be taken away from me, if it's possible, yet not my will be done, but yours. Yet not my will be done, but yours. When we're facing difficulties and hardships, let me suggest, ever so gently and subtly, it's because sometimes God has not done what we wanted. We're disappointed because he hasn't done what we expected or what we wanted. When we come before God and say, but not my will, let your will be done. It just changes that dynamic completely. I suspect we can all relate to the Israelites and Moses' situation in some way. Things haven't gone our own way in life sometimes. Life has got tough or we're suffering a little bit. Things at work are getting on top of us. Or maybe significant illness. Or maybe the loss of someone close. And maybe more generically, God has not done what we thought he would do. We have a choice today and from today as to how we're going to handle that. Are we going to handle it like the Israelites? Are we going to moan and wail about it to everyone but get nothing done? Are we going to crave other things that actually can never satisfy anyway? Are we going to remember the wrong things? Or are we going to be like Moses who related to God as his father, who knew God had the best in mind for his people and for Moses. And it's that concept that shaped everything else for him. It was because he was rooted in deep fatherly goodness of God relationship that he was able to have honest conversations and he was able to walk into the blessing of God. We've got a great mission field that God's laid out before us, the whole city of Sheffield. 
And let me just finish by putting this whole thing in the context of mission. The Israelites were going to take the promised land. But it took them 40 years. Why did it take them 40 years? Because they didn't handle hardship and disappointments well because they didn't believe God. God had work to do on them before he were to bring them in the promised land. Now our situation isn't directly comparable to that, but as a people of God, we want to go into and take hold of all that God has got for us in Sheffield. And perhaps maybe something that might hinder us a little bit is how we handle hardships and disappointments. My prayer for us this morning is that we handle them well. And there's some I think God wants to deal with retrospectively. You're sitting here this morning and you can put your hand up and say, yeah, actually you put your finger on it, I am disappointed with God. And you need to deal with it today. But as we started, the promise of God is you will face hardships. And I, will, I can't promise you this, but you may also face disappointments where God doesn't do what you expect him to do. And we've got to set ourselves in a place where we choose to handle those well and deal with them well so that we can move into all that God has for us. So I just want to finish by praying for us. I think we'll probably sing after that. And we'll just see what God wants to do. He might want to bring some more specific challenge or some specific words to help us get hold of this. But we want to embrace what God's doing amongst us this morning. So can I just ask you to stand? Let's look to God. As I'm praying, why don't you pray as well? Why don't you ask God to draw near, to come and speak to you? We can hear truth from the Bible and it can just float around in our heads and not get into our hearts and change our lives. Let's not be guilty of that this morning. Father, we're so grateful that you've called us by name. We're so grateful this salvation has not been earned by us. It's not, nothing to do with our works or our efforts. It's to do with this free gift of grace. It's to do with the cross of Christ and all that was accomplished there. And we do not want to venture anywhere away from that. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. For all of us who are facing hardships or disappointments, Or for when we do, Lord, we want to be rooted in the fact that you have chosen us and you love us and you have got the best in mind for us. We can trust you wholeheartedly and we can say like Moses, we are your servants and we're ready to do your will. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to come now and just begin to do your work. And as we worship, Holy Spirit, come and challenge us. Come and stir us. Come and let the word of God resound deeply in our souls and our spirits and come and do a work with us this morning, we pray. Amen.